If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out of blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code twelve twelve and get forty dollars off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code twelve twelve. Sleepcoolnow.com twelve twelve. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this January fourteenth, two thousand eighteen. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Doing a um, special three-part edition of the podcast today for a couple of reasons. Primarily because this is the last regularly scheduled edition of the World According to Zig podcast. That doesn't mean we're ending it. That's not my intention nor my expectation. It's the last time we're going to be doing this from the studio that we have been renting for over a couple of years now, because it was the、uh, place where I did most of the nationally syndicated Sunday night radio show before that ended at the end of 2016, and where I've been doing the podcast since that began at the start of 2017.、Uh, we're not going to be doing it on a weekly basis anymore, and we're not going to be doing it from the same location. I'm still not 100% sure about. Uh, the logistics of all that and how that's all going to work out, but I'm hopeful that we'll maintain doing、uh, sporadic, maybe more news-induced <clears throat> podcasts. In other words, if something happens, I'll have more ability to do a podcast on a short、uh, notice, which is good.、Uh, but I don't think we're going to be able to do this on a weekly basis, which, depending on your perspective, may or not be <laughs> may or may not be good. But I'll explain more in hour number two. Well, we're going to do a, a special in honor of this episode,、uh, being the last regularly scheduled edition. We're going to do a special episode of Ask John Anything. We've got some really good questions from people via Twitter and Facebook and email about、uh, what it is that is on your mind. So I look forward to that. And in hour number three, the special, very short third hour, our、um, our favorite guest. You know, our favorite guest is it might be Congressman John Yarmuth or maybe、uh, Franco Harris, but You know, the one who is nearest and dearest to my heart is obviously my daughter Grace, who has been a big part of this show, going back、uh, to the radio show and and also the last edition of the radio show, where she very infamously said, "It's costing money." Right,、um, and、uh, so you will not want to miss Grace's short interview in hour number three. It's about fifteen twenty minutes long, and definitely. Worth your time.、Uh, several moments of hilarity there. So that's the situation. And so hour number one, as usual, is the news hour, and a ton of news, as is also usual in this very strange world and era in which we live. I want to start <laughs> with 
the national championship college football game. Because, you know, that was only uh, Monday, late Monday. And Alabama uh, beat Georgia by almost the identical score that I predicted, by the way. I predicted Alabama would win 24-20. They won 26-23 in overtime. And probably the most exciting finish in the history of national championship college football games. And what I find interesting about this, other than the fact that it was an amazing end of the game and, you know, a freshman, a true freshman quarterback who had never played a meaningful down the entire season from Hawaii that no one had ever heard of before, named Tua, by the way, that we still don't know, you know, no one knows how to pronounce his last name or spell it. So everyone's just referring to him as Tua, which is an abbreviation of his first name. So this guy Tua comes off the bench in a classic, if you made it up in a movie, no one would believe it situation and wins the game in overtime with this amazing 41-yard touchdown pass. And it was really, you know, an extraordinary game, especially the second half, in so many ways. Very exciting, compelling. It wasn't the greatest football game ever played, but it was, it was tremendous. And, the, you know, the storyline could not possibly be beat. And yet, I would say within 24 hours, from a news cycle standpoint, the story was completely forgotten. Uh, and... What I think is significant here, and this, this is emblematic of everything that happens in our culture now, for good or for bad, and it's a large part of why Trump gets away with what he does, because nothing has a shelf life anymore of more than 15 minutes. I mean, within 15 minutes, we're on to the next thing. I mean, the news cycle used to be week by week. Especially in sports. That's what the cover of Sports Illustrated was for. Okay, this is what we're going to talk about this week. So when something happens, you get a block of a week at least of time, especially if it's compelling. You get a block of a week where this is the focus of attention. That's no longer the case. Everything is now a blip on the radar. No matter how spectacular it is, we move on immediately. And that has ramifications, both in the good and the bad. Because I believe that eventually the power of these events is going to dissipate and dilute into almost nothing. In other words, what's driving, let's take college football as an example, the enormity, the enormity of all the effort, the time, the money, the, the, the conversation, you know, going to all these games, I mean, there's an incredible amount of man hours that is built into winning a championship in college football. Well, eventually, I think people are going to find out that even when you do that, even under spectacular circumstances, there's not that much payoff. It's like forgotten almost immediately. And I think that's going to have negative ramifications. Because nothing has any power to it anymore. And there's reasons for that. One, the ratings are down in comparison to what they were in the 70s and 80s simply because of fragmentation. But it's also because of our short attention span. Our attention span is too short for anything to have any real impact. And again, that's what happens with Trump. We saw it again this week. We'll get into this very shortly of all the insane things that happen in the world of Trump that normally would have been at least a week, if not a month's worth of conversation, that get forgotten by the end of the day. 
So nothing ever makes a mark. Nothing ever gets indelibly etched into the memory. And you know, this is actually also related to something that happened yesterday that was at least tangentially related to the national championship, and that is legendary broadcaster Keith Jackson died. Now, what's the relationship? Obviously, well, he was the voice of college football. Uh, interestingly, he his last broadcast was a national championship game that was very similar to the one we had this week. That was the 2006 Rose Bowl between USC and Texas. That was more of an epic historical game because of the two teams involved being undefeated and the three Heisman Trophy finalists playing in the game and the fact that it was so exciting, so high scoring. I was actually at that game and it was amazing. There's one there's one thing just totally off the beaten track, but I'll never have an opportunity to to tell this story again. The one thing people miss or forget about the 2006 Rose Bowl, you know, everyone talks about how you know, Texas won the game with a with a uh, scramble from their quarterback, uh, you know, and that was basically the last play of the game. That's not true. The, the, the biggest mistake Pete Carroll, the coach at USC, ever made that no one ever, 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 ever talks about is that on the extra point, for some bizarre reason, he decided to call a timeout, which meant that they had no more timeouts left. And incredibly long story short, that is, prevented what could have been the greatest ending to any college football game ever and the way that this game should have ended. And that's because there was a moment once USC got the ball back when Reggie Bush, the Heisman Trophy winner, who was later taken away, got a dump pass. And I had a perfect angle where I was sitting. And I'm telling you, if Reggie Bush tried to take it to the house, he had a shot. He had a chance. If, you ever get a, if they ever broadcast that game... Take a look. He had a chance to take it to the house. It wasn't 100%, but that's the way that game deserved to end. The greatest, most spectacular college running back I've ever seen in the open field. Catch me if you can. Instead of throwing a, a Hail Mary, it's I got 50 yards to get into the end zone with no time. Let's see what happens, baby. And instead of that spectacular ending, Reggie is forced to go out of bounds because they have no timeouts. And it was all because of a stupid timeout that Pete Carroll took on the extra point. Anyway, so I digress. So that was, until this week, the greatest, most recent national championship game. Keith Jackson, that was his last game that he broadcast. Since he died Friday night, presumably the last game he ever saw was Monday's national championship game. So that if you're going to go out, good job, Keith Jackson. Your last broadcast was that USC-Texas game. The last game you ever saw was that Alabama-Georgia game. Some of you may remember that Keith Jackson and I had a phone conversation last year. In fact, it was a little less than a year ago because his last broadcast appearance was at last year's Rose Bowl. And at that appearance, he made some statements that indicated to me, because I'm pretty good at reading between the lines, that he was not buying the Penn State scandal because it was a game between USC and Penn State, and he It was a very rambling appearance, but he said some things that were very positive about Penn State and his view of the program. So I decided I'm going to write Keith Jackson a letter. And so I wrote Keith, because he lives here in Southern California, or did, obviously, until he passed away. And so I wrote him a letter, said, Mr. Jackson, I saw your appearance on the Rose Bowl. I'd really like to get a chance to 
share some information with you regarding the so-called Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky scandal. And I'm thinking, there's no chance I'm ever going to hear from Keith Jackson. <laughs> I'm just doing this because I'm covering all my bases, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, you know, whatever I could do. Because, you know, as you, if you know anything about the story, it's utterly insane. And, and I'm the only one that knows the full story, really. So, sure enough, not long after I send a letter, I get a phone call from Keith Jackson. And, boy, he was the nicest guy you could possibly imagine. And there were a couple of things that were uh, interesting about the phone call. Number one, it was obvious that my instincts were right. And I want to put words into a dead man's mouth, especially on a topic this controversial. But trust me, he was not buying the Penn State scandal. He wasn't buying it from a Joe Paterno perspective. And he had spent a lot of time with Jerry Sandusky, a lot of time on the golf course with Jerry Sandusky. And he wasn't buying that part either. But he also knew that there was nothing that could be done. And interestingly, and I'll never forget this, I've never spoken with anybody. And, I've, you know, I've had the normal amount of people around me die of old age. I've never spoken to anybody. And this is the only conversation I've ever had with Keith Jackson, who was more certain and more at ease regarding their impending death. He told me, you know, look, I'm not going to be around for much longer. I've lived a good life. It's over for me. I mean, he didn't say it in like a depressing way. It was very much a, this is the reality, and uh, you know, I'm going to be gone soon. And in fact, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, you know, this is one of those things you just remember because it happened. I'm sure if it hadn't happened, I would never even have recalled this. But I even thought this week about, boy, I wonder how long until Keith Jackson goes. And sure enough, Friday night, uh, Keith Jackson passed away, and and he is one of those voices, one of those iconic broadcast voices that will never be duplicated. And part of the reasons they will never be duplicated, there's a lot of reasons. Part of it is because ESPN has destroyed sportscasting. That's part of it. But a bigger part of it is there are so few iconic moments. For there to be iconic broadcasters, there need to be iconic moments. And for there to be iconic moments, there have to be communal moments. Communal moments meaning... Large portions of the population, I don't know what the threshold is, but, you know, at least a quarter or a third of the population has to have witnessed it. Well, that almost never happens anymore because of fragmentation. The Super Bowl is basically the only event on an annual basis where that occurs. And then even then, the third question asked after any Super Bowl is, gee, I wonder who's going to win next year, because that's our attention spans. So... Our attention spans are too short. We are too fragmented for there ever to be the iconic moments that can make an iconic broadcaster, a legendary broadcaster. And so the golden age and all these guys, I put out a list on Twitter, all these legendary voices like Keith Jackson, all came of age in the 70s and 80s because that was the time, that was the golden age of sports TV. Technology had gotten to the point where we could do live broadcasts, and there were only four or five channels. So when there was a decent live broadcast, the whole damn world was watching. No longer now. Hell, when when ESPN broadcasts the national championship game, they've actually got it on like five different channels, different versions of it. So even if you're watching the game, you're not watching the same version of the game. That's how fragmented we are. 
And it's it's unfortunate. It's, it's sad. I mean, like of the current crop of sportscasters, Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles, is like the only guy left that you could really say his voice conjures up indelible moments in American sports history. The 1980 Olympic hockey game. There are others, but nothing's ever going to beat Do You Believe in Miracles. I can't think of anybody else currently working that comes close to that. And Michaels isn't going to be around for much longer. So rest in peace, Keith Jackson. Now, uh, so many things happened this week. One thing that didn't really happen, but we thought was happening, that got a lot of attention was this alert that went out in Hawaii yesterday that there was a missile attack (laughs) that was imminent towards Hawaii. People freaked out for about 40 minutes. People were under the belief, based upon a text message that they got, uh, that Hawaii was going to be attacked by a nuclear missile. Now, I can certainly understand why people freaked out about it. And I absolutely am in the camp of this is an illustration of just how incredibly easy it would be for us to get into an accidental nuclear war, especially with Donald Trump as president. David Frum tweeted, can you imagine if this alert had been broken live during Fox and Friends on a day when Trump was watching and not playing golf? It's meant as a joke, but that's that would have been a serious problem. You know, not having a a sane person in the White House doesn't mean we're going to end up in an accidental nuclear war, but it takes away one of the important safeguards, right? I mean, if, if Trump is the one reacting, we are far more vulnerable to a perfect storm of screw ups causing a problem. So I'm all for this discussion, but I do find it a bit odd that. People thinking for 40 minutes that they were in peril has gotten so much attention over the last day or so. When if you think about it, it's actually kind of a positive experience, right? I mean, if you think you might die and you're texting loved ones, you know, I love you or whatever, and it turns out to be false and you get that relief plus you get that bonding of whoever it is you're you're sharing your final moments with in the end that seems like a mostly positive experience right especially since it was only 40 minutes interestingly and uh, and this could be completely coincidental you know there's a pga tour golf event going on in hawaii right now and i read an article about how some of the guys really got freaked out by the text alert because the tea times hadn't happened yet. So it was in the morning and a couple of apparently one of them was totally freaked out with their family and feeling like, you know, Oh my gosh, we're all going to die. And I believe every single guy quoted in the article played like crap yesterday. (laughs) So, so there, which I don't believe would be necessarily coincidental. Uh, And yeah, that's a negative, that's a negative connotation, but that's a pretty small number of guys. And, Frankly, you know, it's hard to feel that sorry for people playing on the PGA Tour, making millions of dollars to play golf. So, but anyway, the point is, by and large, I don't see what the big deal is from a human standpoint. Yes, it's a big deal from how did this happen and could it accidentally cause a nuclear war in retaliation of something that never happened. 
But I'm particularly uh, struck by this in light of the fact that this week at least 20 people died about 25 minutes from where I'm speaking to you from in Montecito, California, in a massive mudslide that shut down, has still shut down the major highway from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara, the 101 going north. At least 20 people are dead. Some are still missing. Lots of people injured. Hundreds of homes damaged. Many totally destroyed. There's even some rather extraordinary video of this thing. And by and large, now it's hard for me to judge it because I live in the market, you know, the L.A. media market, where it has been a big story. But nationally, my sense is it has not gotten nearly the attention that it deserves. I mean, this was a massive tragedy that caused enormous damage. And, you know, what's really odd is Montecito has a lot of celebrities. Like Oprah lives there. Uh, Rob Lowe lives there. Um, you know, Montecito is a gorgeous place and Ton, and a, a lot of celebrities go there to get away, not you know, just to be you know, away from the riffraff and uh, and and the, have privacy. I mean, this is how, how much privacy you can have in Montecito, California. I, this is my favorite Montecito story. Not that I have that many of them, although I spent a, quite a bit of time there. There's a public tennis court just off the highway in Montecito, and the public tennis court has a wall like a lot of tennis courts do, where you can go by yourself and just pound tennis balls against the wall. On a regular basis, almost everyday basis, if you go there during a certain time, you will find Jimmy Connors banging tennis balls against the wall at the public tennis court in Montecito, California. <laughs> Jimmy Connors, <laughs> tennis legend, <laughs> just all alone, Banging tennis balls against the wall. That's Montecito, California, folks. That's that's how high-end Montecito is. And yet, so this story has everything. Celebrity, video, death, destruction. And I can't think, the only explanation, the only explanation I have, and it's not a, a perfect one for why this hasn't gotten more attention is, one, it's a little bit, far away from Los Angeles, so it's not, you know, an urban area. But in, in, in relation to that, these are mostly rich white people, with the exception of Oprah. And I think that at least subconsciously, that plays a part in this. I think subconsciously it plays a part that we got a bunch of rich white people here, and that's kind of what you, you, you get, you know, you get what you deserve for living in a place that's uh, kind of dangerous, you know, mountains next to the ocean, bad things are going to happen. Uh, I don't have a per that's I don't feel strongly about that, but that's the only thing I can come up with because it doesn't make a lot of sense. But the Montecito story is is really really horrible and very tragic. All right, now uh, every week we talk about the Trump insanity. And this was another uh, stellar week for that. I wrote a column which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com about one day one day, Wednesday, I went through, you know, Trump made uh, a couple of uh, press appearances on Wednesday, and I just went through the nutty things he said on that day that in a normal presidency would have been talked about 
for many days, if not weeks. One of which was, and this hit home for me because I'm a free speech advocate, him advocating a change to our libel laws. Now, the the layers of insanity on this uh, know no ends, <laughs> almost literally. Because, first of all, uh, as, a, as, as a president, you're supposed to uphold the Constitution. As an alleged Republican conservative, you're supposed to believe in free speech. And as a guy who lies your ass off on a regular basis, as Trump does, you have no standing to be complaining about how people can get away with lies. But that's what Trump was doing without a hint of self-awareness, live from the, from the White House, talking about how people should not be allowed to lie and make money about, off of it while smiling. And he, he says that his administration is going to try to change the libel laws so that people can be sued more easily for telling lies. Well, the great irony of that, of course, is if that ever happens, and there's no indication that it will, this, this is pure Trump bullshit. This is, this is Trump's way of trying to tell his base, boy, oh boy, I wish, I wish I could sue that author of that book, Michael Wolf, but I can't because our libel laws aren't, aren't strong enough and they're, 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 you know, they're, they're crazy. They're, they don't make any sense. They're a sham, all of which is nuts, not accurate. But if the libel laws ever were made so it was easier for a public figure to be sued over something they said that was untrue, Barack Obama would own Trump Tower. Own it. And that's not an exaggeration. That's just a factual reality. What Because Trump... What he did on the birther situation was he blatantly lied about something that he either knew was a lie or should have known was a lie. I mean, I, I think Obama would have an interesting case against Trump even under the current law. And what was really hilarious, just another layer of the absurdity of this whole thing, is that if you listened carefully to Trump, to what Trump said about changing the libel laws, you could argue that our libel laws currently are exactly as he wants them to be. <laughs> whether he doesn't understand that or not, or whether it's just all bullshit, I don't know. But we have libel laws. And if you knowingly say something that is false and damaging with actual malice against the public, even against the public figure, you can sue that person. Interestingly, Trump never does. I wonder why, even though, of course, he claims that he will sue people, like, for instance, with the accusers uh, that went after him at the end of the 2016 election. He claimed he was going to go after all those people with a lawsuit and never did. Gee, I wonder why. Because he's full of crap. And he knows that a lawsuit would be bad for him. One, because he wouldn't win, and two, because he'd have to be put under a deposition. So it's all just a, a fraud. It's, he's bluffing. All for his cult. And the cult buys it every time. Cult 45, they'll buy it every time. And they do again and again and again. So that was just on Wednesday. But even that day didn't contain two of the bigger, craziest stories of the week with regard to Donald Trump. Obviously, the media has been obsessed with his comments 
regarding why it is that we're taking in so many people from, quote-unquote, shithole countries. Shithole countries. It was almost impossible to watch CNN towards the end of this week for more than five minutes without hearing the word or seeing the word shithole. And they didn't censor it at all. Now, I understand why they didn't censor it, because it's allegedly coming from the President of the United States, and I, I do think that that makes it legitimate. It's a tougher call, but it seems pretty clear that Trump said it, and therefore what he actually said is important. Now, before I get into the, to the context and the importance or lack thereof of the shithole country's comment, it, it is amazing and so typical of Trump and his minions and his conservative media lackeys that Trump can get away with bragging that he said this and that it's going to play well with his base and also denying that he said it which is classic Trump, and I don't know whether or not this is part of his genius or part of his luck, but that actually is a perfect strategy because for those in his base, and there absolutely are some, who are excited by him saying that countries like Haiti and continents like Africa are shithole countries, those people are excited by that. They're pumped up by that. Is it racist? Absolutely. There's an element of racism to it. 100%. And Trump understands that. And so he benefits from those people thinking he said that. Yeah! You tell it like it is, Trumpy. And this is especially coming off of the disaster that was his DACA press availability, which got his base all nervous about whether he was going to cave on illegal immigration. So for him to immediately come out with this story, and it's it's actually brilliant. It's actually, the whole shithole thing is actually so brilliant, to me it has to be by accident. Because he didn't say it on tape, but he said it to people he knew would leak it, right? So he knew the story would get out there, but he also knew it would get out there in a way that if people didn't want to believe he said it, They could pretend, ah, fake news. If they did want to believe he said it, they could say, damn straight, telling it like it is. That's the Trump we elected. So he gets a benefit no matter what. And there's nobody, literally nobody, who's going to be watching CNN, who was a Trump supporter, and who's going to go, gee, sources say that Trump referred to Countries I don't really like as shithole countries? Damn, that's the last straw. I've had enough. I'm no longer supporting him. That's not going to happen. It's just not. There's nobody in that category. So Trump was right, if it's true, that he was bragging to people that his base was going to love the shithole country's comment. He's right. Now, had he said this on video, I think that would have been a problem. Like, if he had said this publicly in a way that people could say, well, wait a minute, that's totally inappropriate for a president to say, to say it publicly because of the language that is involved, as well as the the racial aspects of the comment itself, that would have hurt him. But he knew he wasn't on video. This was a private meeting with congressional leaders. So, again, I this to me is the existential question about Trump. 
You know, my, my daughter asked. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? I think I pretty much know the answer to that. I think he's mostly a bad person. But what I would like to know about Trump is, is he a genius in this regard? Or is he just getting lucky? He's making it up as he goes and not. See, I don't know. I, and maybe it changes based upon the subject matter. This might be, might be an, an, an episode where he actually contrived the whole thing. If he didn't, then he's the luckiest guy ever. Because I don't think this is going to hurt him at all. And in many ways, I think it will actually help him. I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. And part of the reason why the shithole country thing is going to help him, not only because it makes up in his base's mind for the whole DACA disaster from earlier in the week, but because the media went so, for lack of a better term, ape shit over shithole that it plays exactly into his narrative. The media constantly overreacts to everything Trump does and says. And the virtue signaling on this whole shithole thing, especially on CNN, was off the charts. It was like everyone was trying to out-virtue signal themselves. I think Don Lemon ended up winning, although Anderson Cooper got a consolation prize because he kind of cried on the air. I, I look, Folks, um, yeah, should Trump have said this? No. Is it an indication he's probably a racist? Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that's already built in. It's already baked into the cake, at least in my mind. But this isn't even close to the worst thing that Trump has done, in my view. This was a private conversation where he used profanity in a way that was inappropriate and made it may have been racist. <laughs> in a normal presidency, that's a that's a big fucking deal, right? In the Trump presidency, that's called Thursday or Friday, whatever. I guess it was Thursday. So hard to even remember. It's hard to remember all the nuttiness. So, yes, on, that, that's what's called Thursday in the Trump presidency. But when the media goes so overboard, it plays right into his hands. Because uh, those who are even remotely supportive of him are going to go, come on. Can we have some context here? Can we keep this in proportion? So... I get why people are upset by shithole countries, and they have every right to be, but I don't think that the impact of this is going to be discernible at all. Uh, in fact, I think in some ways this will actually, as sad as it is, help Trump. Very similarly, the story that broke on Friday for any other president would be an earthquake. I mean, I'm talking about the Stormy Daniels allegation. So on Friday, we learned that this ex-porn star, whose stage name was Stormy Daniels, had received $130,000 in a non-disclosure agreement just before the 2016 campaign. Can you? I mean, to me, this there's no story that shows how desensitized we are than this one. This is as proof of desensitization as you can possibly get. When you consider that Gary Hart, I think about Gary Hart all the time. Remember Gary Hart? Gary Hart was the front runner for the Democratic presidential nomination in, what was it, 1988, right? 1988. And he got torpedoed 
instantaneously because of a photo he took with a hot woman, Donna Rice was her name, on his lap. That was it. To my knowledge, there's never been any proof they ever even had an affair. And he ended up resigning from the race. (laughs) I mean, Gary Hart must look at what's going on now and go, what the fuck? What the flying fuck? In in a similar vein, I always think about Millie Vanilli. You know, you know the 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 I guess you call them a band that uh, got caught uh, lip syncing, and it turns out they didn't even sing any of their songs, and one of them ended up killing themselves. I'm thinking, if Millie Vanilli happened today, it would make them bigger stars, bigger stars, because their celebrity would increase. So the world is so changed. But anyway, here we have a president of the United States, where we have pretty much deadlock cinch evidence that just before an election he paid $130,000 to a former porn star to shut up about an affair they had while he was married, just after his wife had given birth, I believe. Now, that used to be deadly. That used to be decapitation for a public figure of any sort. Forget about a president of the United States. I don't believe there will be any impact on this at all. None. And in fact, similar to the shithole country's comment, I am sure there's a lot of people in his base that are like, damn, that is awesome. Trump banged a porn star and got her to shut up about it. And also similar to the shithole countries, Trump benefits from both being able to deny it and pretend that it actually happened. So if you're one of those people who wanted it to happen as I'm sure a lot of people in his base wanted it to happen because they think more highly of him, then it happened. If you're one of those people who doesn't want to believe it happened, then you have more than enough plausible deniability because, well, there's no real 100% proof. She's denied it. He hasn't said it happened, although I half expected him to tweet, damn right I nailed her. I mean... (laughs) That would have gotten that I guarantee you Trump was thinking about that. <laughs> because this was probably the proudest moment of his presidency. Having her picture all over Twitter, the whole world talking for hours about him having sex with Stormy Daniels. And as far as this denial, I love this. God, Trump Trumpsters are such idiots! So their argument that this is false is that she put out a statement saying that she never had an affair with Trump. Okay, let's examine the problems with this. First of all, she signed the statement with her stage name, Stormy Daniels, which is weird to begin with. Number two, she did the statement, according to the date on the statement, two days before the story breaks. Gee, I I wonder what would cause her, what would cause her to sign this statement two days before the story breaks publicly? Hmm. Oh, I know. Wait a minute. If we use our brains for a fucking minute, here's what happened. The Wall Street Journal gets the story. They're going with it. They ask the White House for comment, 
The White House, of course, doesn't provide uh, any real comment. But now they know the story's coming out, so what do they do? They contact Stormy Daniels. They say, here, we need you to sign this. This is part of the package you got paid for. And voila, there's a statement denying it. The statement was clearly written by Trump himself, if you read the statement. It had everything except you know, the, the, what I was disappointed by, by the, the Stormy Daniels statement, was I was fully expecting the last line to be, I did not have sex with Donald Trump, but if I had had sex with Donald Trump, I can assure you it would have been the most wonderful experience of my entire life, and I regret not having sex with Donald Trump. That would have been as Trumpy as it gets, but clearly Trump did not pay for the deluxe package. He only paid her $130,000. Had he paid her $230,000, she probably would have added the line about sex with Trump would have been the most awesome thing I've ever experienced. But Except for that being part of the statement, it was obvious this was contrived, which is how this works. That's what you get when you buy a non-disclosure agreement. People, use your freaking brains. And the evidence is overwhelming from other sources, contemporary sources, the fact that she was ready to do an interview. She was ready to do an interview with ABC Good Morning America days before the 2016 election. Gee, why would ABC want that? Hmm. Oh, I know. Because she was going to say she had an affair with the president while he was married. And then she pulls the plug. Why? Because that finally got the Trump people to pay her. Interestingly, she almost reneged on the deal because, shockingly, Trump didn't pay her. Oh, classic Trump. (laughs) But finally did pay her. (laughs) Now, I don't know, is it possible that this was paid in segments? I don't know. But the evidence to me is overwhelming that the story about Stormy Daniels is real, that she was paid, and that... In a normal world, this would be a big story, but in a Trump world, it's not. And that's how desensitized we are, how dangerously desensitized we are. Stormy Daniels is a, is a done story now. Unless something new happens, we're, it's done. It was a Friday night news dump. It's over. Now, would she, you know, I, the, she could theoretically decide to change her mind, see, this is the downside of having no credibility like Trump, right? In a, in a, if you're somebody that actually has credibility and you have a letter from someone saying something didn't happen, it would be very difficult for the media to then ever take them seriously in the future if they change their mind. But with Trump, I don't think that would be a problem. I think she has an, a, a perpetual ability to tell this story whenever she wants to. How impactful it would be, I have no idea. But that's, you know, I I start every podcast with, you know, we're living in this upside-down world. That's the upside-down world we're living in, folks. Stormy Daniels' story is basically nothing. Now, I want to mention what I've already referred to uh, with this whole DACA uh, press availability, which was extraordinary in in so many ways. And, again, in a normal presidency, we would be talking about this for weeks. But President Trump decided, basically on a whim – that he was going to let the press into what he later referred to as his studio. The President of the United States referred to his office as his studio and referred to 
his quote unquote performance. He, this is what he's saying publicly, not privately. He publicly is saying things that indicate he thinks he's in a reality TV show. So he brings in the press for this negotiation about DACA and illegal immigration. And Diane Feinstein from California, who is pro-illegal immigration, although many years ago she was actually very anti-illegal immigration, which will tell you just how much California has changed for the worse. But she starts in on you know the typical liberal line, we've got to do DACA, and then maybe later we can do something else. And Trump buys it hook, line, sinker. Completely buys in, yep, yep, we'll do that first. Make that deal. I love making deals. Then we can do comprehensive immigration reform. And the Republicans in the room are like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> what the fuck is going on? And Kevin McCarthy, to his credit, also from California, he jumps in from the House. And he says, Mr. President, I, I think you're not quite understanding what Dianne Feinstein is saying. And, you know, there's a lot of different analogies you could use for what was going through McCarthy's head. But as a dad, here's what I felt. I felt like that situation where something happens during Christmas time where one adult is saying something with my daughter in earshot that might make her figure out that there's no Santa Claus. And I immediately jump in with an explanation for where we're going with this so, so, so that she doesn't start to think that there's no Santa Claus, whether, you know, someone's questioning the elf on the shelf or whatever. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait. Um, I think we I think you might have gotten it wrong, Miss Feinstein. I think I think what you meant to say is that the elf on the shelf is magical and that uh, he only comes around once a day and that he's the one who gives the information to Santa Claus. Right. <laughs> That's that's what McCarthy was trying to do, because McCarthy knows how gullible Trump is and how the last person to speak to him is basically the most influential. And all of this caused quite a bit of consternation, understandably so, with uh, Trump's base and Coulter had a fit. By the way, I am so tired. I mean, how many times does Ann Coulter get to threaten to break up with Donald Trump? How many times? And get attention. I mean, it is amazing. This is We've gone through this like a dozen times. Oh, Ann Coulter's breaking up with Donald Trump. And then, of course, she immediately comes running right back, like battered women's syndrome. I mean, it's, it's, I'm done with it. I'm done with Ann Coulter. She's a fraud. She's a fraud. She's just, like a lot of people in the conservative media, it's just about how much attention and money she can get. It's not about the truth. But we saw the real Donald Trump there, folks. And you know what we really saw? Here's what we really saw. We saw the future, the scary future of what happens if and when Democrats take the House and the Senate. Because you know what happens if that occurs in the the midterms in 2018? That conversation is totally different. Because one, it probably won't be on national television. And two, Trump won't give a shit about what Kevin McCarthy says. And neither will the Democrats, because they'll have the numbers, or at least close to the numbers. And that's when we're going to see Trump at his full, true, liberal New York City colors, especially on illegal immigration. It was all a con. It was all a con. I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. And that, you know, if there was one issue on which I was most certain Trump was conning his base, and where it angered me the most, it was illegal immigration. 
There never was going to be a wall. There never will be a massive wall. They've already basically backed down on that. Trump is saying now that DACA is dead. Of course DACA is dead now because there's no way to thread that needle. You can't thread the needle. The Democrats aren't going to give him any any cover on the wall, and, and Republicans aren't going to totally cave while they have the majority. But here's what's going to happen once the Republicans are out of the majority. Trump will cave big time because he doesn't really believe anything he said during the campaign. It was a con. He conned a lot of people who really believed it, including my old co-host, Leah Brandon. That's probably what pissed me off. You know, She and I are no longer friends. We used to be very close, and it was largely because she got the Trump virus. And a lot of it was because she actually believed him on illegal immigration. It was all horseshit. It was all a con. I wrote one other column uh, this week for uh, Mediaite about the notion of Oprah Winfrey running for president. I'm not going to go into too great a detail because my guess is we'll talk about this again if anything happens. But the reason why I wrote the column is that really the, the biggest hurdle to Oprah being the Democratic nominee in 2020 is her deciding to run. That's the biggest hurdle. I believe that if she decides to run, barring catastrophe, she will be the nominee, especially if it's a very crowded field, like anything close to what the Republicans had in 2016. I explain why that's the case, and I also explain why she would be poorly suited to go up against Trump in a general election. She could beat him. I mean, polls indicate she's way ahead of him right now in a popular vote. Uh, how that would translate to the Electoral College, no one knows at this point. But uh, I, I explain why I think she would be very vulnerable and very ill-suited to go up against Trump in a general election. So check that out either via freespeechbroadcasting.com or via Google. Just Google me and Oprah and Trump. The um, Actually, I, I, I lied earlier. I didn't, I wrote, it was not the last column I wrote. I, know, I wrote another column about the fact that this weekend a movie – from Steven Spielberg came out, starring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, called The Post. I want you to check this article out because it deals with a really important issue. And that is the problem that journalism has, because the movie is about the Washington Post and the 1971 publishing of the Pentagon Papers. And the, the theme of the movie is the owner of the Washington Post, Catherine Graham's belief in 1971, that quality and profitability go hand-in-hand when it comes to a newspaper. That may or may not have been the case in 1971. The thesis of my column is there's absolutely no question that is not the reality in 2018. It was not the reality in 2016, which ironically enough is why we got Donald Trump as the Republican nominee and president. There is now an inverse relationship between quality and profitability. And that's why we get no quality from journalism. That's why people have lost faith in journalism. That's why no one believes the media when they say how nuts Donald Trump is, at least on the conservative side, because after all, and I don't blame conservatives for this. I mean, I'm smart enough and know enough about it to see when they're telling the truth and when they're not. Sometimes they are actually telling the truth. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're exaggerating. But I can understand why the rank-and-file conservative base who doesn't pay that much attention to it doesn't know the ins and outs like I do. I can understand why they don't believe any of it. Because after all, the very same people were having their pom-poms out cheerleading for Barack Obama for eight straight years nonstop. So their credibility is understandably gone. 
But this is an incredibly important issue, and I explain in, in some pretty good detail about why there is this inverse relationship now between quality and profitability. So check that out again at freespeechbroadcasting.com or via Google. A couple other things I want to mention before hour number one is, is up. This uh, Me Too movement has seen um, another development in the last uh, 24 hours or so that I think is worthy of mention. Aziz Ansari, who is a, um, a actor who is of Indian descent, although he was born in America, who is a television actor, I, I guess he just won a Golden Globe. I am absolutely stunned that an article from a, from a website, I don't even want to call it a news website because I know, I know nothing about this site, but the site is called Babe.net. I don't even know what Babe.net does. But somehow, Babe.net, after he won a Golden Globe, and sorry, won a Golden Globe last weekend, that they decided that a date that he went on quite a while ago that turned out badly was newsworthy enough to publish the version of that date from the female involved in the date while allowing her to remain anonymous. Now, think about this, folks. So you go on a bad date. You're a non-celebrity. You go out on a date with a celebrity. There's sexual contact, which is totally consensual. I mean, she acknowledges in this story that she gave him oral sex voluntarily and quite quickly after coming back to his place after a first date. Gee, I can't understand why a guy might think that uh, coming back to his place after a date and giving him oral sex is, is a yes. I mean, that's just crazy. It's just crazy. It's just flat out ridiculous. That, that, that a guy would think, oh, okay, so we're, we're good to go here. Um, so, but, but think about this. So this woman feels horrible about the date now, understandably so if it's remotely true. So, because it goes all awry. No allegation of anything that I can tell that's remotely criminal. But if it's all true, the guy's a jackass. Okay. Yeah. Lots of guys are jackasses, especially when they, they're trying to get laid. And, So now she has no contact with him. She has no disincentive to lie. She has actually an incentive to lie because she's got an animus towards him. She gets to remain anonymous. And the anonymity issue is at the crux of this entire topic. People, I understand why they want accusers to be able to remain anonymous. I get it. In a perfect world, we could do that. But guess what? We don't live in a perfect world. This is nowhere near utopia. So unfortunately, in order to prevent false accusations, I believe we cannot give blanket anonymity to accusers. Because who you are is incredibly important. Not just the idea of meeting your accuser, but for all we know, and I'm not saying I have no knowledge of this at all, but if we knew who this person was, we might also find out a lot about them. We could, who knows? They might be a pathological liar. They might have been arrested for uh, credit card fraud or uh, theft or all sorts of things. I mean, there's all sorts of things we could theoretically know that would discredit their story. If we knew who they were, but when you 
allow this, then this rule is now hard fast in the news media that there's blanket anonymity given. That's incredibly dangerous because now you can say anything you want because there's no way for anyone to combat it. Right? If you, if your name is out there publicly, there's all sorts of things that people might be able to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This person told me this happened instead of, you know, X instead of Y or wait a minute. Uh, you know, I, they told me how much they thought this guy was awesome. Or, or, or how we would know what their Twitter feed is. And they might have said, gee, I met uh, Aziz Ansari. He was awesome. There's all sorts of things that will happen if we knew who this person was, but we don't. And the other thing is, the allegations in this, which are, as I speak, are still trending on Twitter, are are very much consistent with a bad sexual experience. So we are now policing and criminalizing Bad sex. That's what it is. That's what this is. This is a guy who, because he's a star, is my view of what probably happened. You know, he's he's used to women coming on to him, and you know, they, this woman goes on a date, comes back to his place, gives him oral sex. He's thinking, hey, she's hot to trot. <laughs> he thinks he's a big stinking deal. Well, she's not feeling the chemistry. And by the way, I, one of the things that would be interesting to know is if we knew who she was, what's her race? Not because there's a racist angle here, but I happen to believe, and this is one of those things we never want to talk about, let's say she's white. Pretty decent chance a white girl and an Indian guy might not have chemistry. She might The idea of having sex with this guy might be different than the actual reality of having sex with him. That's nothing against Indians. It's just That's just the nature, I believe, of humanity and evolution. It's maybe she's never had relations with an Indian guy before. And so it's not working for her. Well, meanwhile, he thinks, hey, she's into this. So there's a misunderstanding and all sorts of bad things happen. Again, nothing of a criminal nature. And the Me Too movement, and I've engaged with some of these people, some of even conservatives, conservative women, some of them, think that this is another example of, of how everything is sexual assault. And I'm like, wow, we are really setting up some dangerous precedents, some dangerous rules. And where do you go back from this? There's no going back. Once you're criminalizing consensual sexual relationships and refereeing bad sex. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. I mean, most guys are not good at sex. <laughs> That's just the reality of it. Especially, you know, in the with the modern-day expectations that women have because of media. I mean, it's it's not always going to be fireworks and wonderfulness. That's just the nature of the act, the nature of humanity. So it, it just another example of how this thing, in my view, has gotten totally out of hand. And I don't know this guy in sorry at all. He could be a complete asshole for all I know. But the story that was given from her perspective with her given anonymity did not rise to the level of a legitimate story, but it's being perceived that way, and that's dangerous. Similarly, this week uh, it was announced that HBO is going to be airing the Joe Paterno movie in May. Uh, someone on Twitter actually suggested putting together a raffle uh, to see who can pick how long it will be before my head explodes when I see the movie. I think someone suggested six minutes. I think it'll be under that. 
We also learned that Sarah Ganim, the reporter given credit for breaking the Sandusky story, laughably, uh, is a consultant on this movie. I wish I had known this event was going on, although I can't imagine I would have gotten in anyway. But in Pasadena, they did a press availability where all the people involved in the movie were marveling. And Sarah Ganim, this reporter who now works for CNN, was there marveling how this 23-year-old woman was able to break this story wide open that she won the Pulitzer Prize and that they have never heard of a green 23-year-old reporter being able to pull something like this off. And I'm reading the article. I'm like, you people are so fucking stupid. Did it ever occur to you that it's unbelievable that she did this? Because it's literally unbelievable? Because it did not happen that way? That she was a prosecution stooge because they had no fucking case? And so they handed her leak after leak because she was naive? And as a 23-year-old female, she was thinking about this case, first of all, from a career perspective and how it could help her. And two, she's thinking about all these teenage boy accusers as if they were girls and it's a totally different situation between an old man and a girl, a teenage girl, and a and an old man and a heterosexual teenage boy. Those are two totally different worlds. But Sarah Ganim is the biggest fraud, in this, well, one of the biggest frauds in this whole case. Whether she's ever going to get hers, I don't know. But if I have anything to do with it, she will. But it's just it's just hilarity. It's it's fantasy land. It's a fairy tale. And these people in the paternal movie have no idea. So that's supposedly coming out in May. Related to this, Ben Shapiro, conservative icon to a lot of people, a guy who thinks a lot like I do, although he's a lot better politician than I am, uh, and he's managed this whole Trump thing far better from a political and, and business perspective than I have, I think somewhat in a contrived fashion. He wrote a, 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 an article this week that referenced the Penn State scandal in a way that was completely inaccurate. And I reached out to him and Thanks in large part to a lot of people on Twitter urging Ben to find out what the real story was. He and I had a phone conversation this week on Friday, and it was very nice. We hadn't talked in a very long time. I interviewed him way, way, way back when I was on KFI in Los Angeles, and he had written his first book as a wonderkind teenage conservative. And um, and it, it not I was not surprised at all because I know Ben to be a very smart guy. And because of the conservative mentality, I knew exactly how to approach him on this story. But within, I'd say, five to ten minutes, he realized immediately that something is very rotten in Denmark, that the media narrative about this case is wrong. I'm not going to put words in his mouth as far as what he actually believes, but he is now completely open-minded and very eager to find out more. And I think if if we get out this out into the mainstream, I think Ben's one of those guys who would likely – uh, give the real truth a hearing. At least I'm hopeful of that. So it was a productive conversation, and I was shocked how many people on Twitter were really excited to hear that Ben was starting to see the light on the Penn State scandal. All right, uh, hour number two is going to be a, a special hour because we're going to do Ask John Anything. I'm gonna, I've am gonna. i got a bunch of really good questions that uh, people have provided via Twitter and Facebook and email, so make sure you listen to that. Hour number three is an interview with my daughter, Grace, since this is her last chance to come into the radio studio to be interviewed, and she asked to do that, so I did, and hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as I did. That's hour number three. Uh, and also uh, in hour number two, I'll 
fully explain or more fully explain what's going on with the podcast itself. As always, I ask only two things of you. Number one, please make sure you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.